From Mito Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. On this week's episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Mary Gillis from the Lawrence National Labs to talk about potassium crystals, fungi, and clouds. So stay tuned for this coming up in a few moments. Welcome back to the program. One of the greatest mysteries in the sky is the formation of clouds. How do they come and what precipitates them? Well, joining us today is our very special guest, Dr. Mary Gillis from the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, who will talk about her latest research in cloud formation in the Amazon. Uh, Dr. Gillis, thanks so much for joining us here today. No, it's a pleasure. So you've uh, recently published a very interesting article with colleagues um, at Lawrence Berkeley as well as Max Planck and other institutes. Um, this is really a, a multinational research you've carried out. Was most of this done in the Amazon jungle or uh, just in the lab? Well, I think that um, first it was pretty much it's, this is driven by the, the German counterparts, Meinrad, Andre, and Christopher. And um, Myra's been active in the Amazon for a number of years on a variety of field campaigns. And so with this specific project, what they do is they, they go out into this fairly remote area and they have collectors where they collect the aerosols and then they seal them and then they take them back and look at them using a, a variety of um, laboratory techniques or like the SEM can be a lab technique. You can do imaging with, you know, nano sims, or they use also here what's different and where I'm more directly involved is when they use one of the, the national labs and they use a, a large federal facility, which is the advanced light source. And so time-wise, probably for these samples, much more time was spent in the lab than in the exciting areas of the Amazon. That's how the Lawrence Berkeley Labs and Advanced Light Source were involved in analyzing these particulates. Yeah, yeah. So, so we didn't go down into this uh, to the Amazon for this field mission. There's other work that um, I do in my group where we we do get to go to interesting places like, you know, Chile or Mexico or, but in this part, the the German counterparts did that. But usually it's not uncommon that you have um, people from a variety of different countries where they have different expertise and, and they work together in right. this field. It tends to be very collaborative, right. and especially if it's a field campaign. They're very, very collaborative by nature. 
science is usually a very universal thing. When you say aerosols, are you talking about solid particulates suspended in the air and what sizes they are? Well, so I think people say aerosols, and they usually they can use that to mean the solids, or they can also be liquid phase. And you could even have something that during its lifetime is solid at some point in time and is then in a different environment in different temperature, and it's liquid. So it, it could change in its lifetime, whether it's a solid or a liquid phase. So the, the part that, you know, we would do it microscopy on, you know, it I think of it as, you know, you have something and it could have been solid or it could have been a droplet and, you know, it hits onto like a little plate, but then it dries and whatever is there is like the residual of of an aerosol. It could have been solid when it hit or it could have been liquid, but it's the residual of that is what I we see. actually look at in the microscopies. Yeah, I understand there's a lot of uh, different scientific aspects to this research project. To begin, what was the uh, the question driving this particular research uh, in terms of understanding the, the cloud aspect? Well, I think that the, the driver wasn't actually initially understanding the cloud aspect. I think that was what was surprising is I think part of it was initially is looking at, okay, what is the organic component in the Amazon where, you know, you're far away from any kind of industrial sources, so you really only have, you know, the local environment as, as a source, and what do those organic components look like, and do they look like similar to things that we would expect in a lab when we have, you know, look at terpenes and typical emissions that come out of out of forested areas and you age them the way they would be aged in the atmosphere with ozone or with reactions with OH, so typical mm -hmm. atmospheric aging processes. So you make those in the lab and is that what we really see or what they would typically see in that remote, more pristine environment or not where you have these kinds of terpenes and pinenes coming from the forest. Mm -hmm. and so. That was one of the, the goals to look at it. And then I think finding that there was potassium inside of these particulates was not expected. So that was where it kind of took its own turn. And that, you know, the vast, vast majority had potassium. And that was an unexpected. And, and but, but we know from other work that, you know, if you have the presence of a, of a salt, mm -hmm. that these will induce nucleation, that these are really good things for other constituents in the atmosphere to condense onto. And so we know that from other work, but we didn't expect to see them here. You can have potassium present in aerosols, and that's seen in many other places, but it wasn't expected in this environment. And the reason it wasn't expected is because normally if you're looking at a field campaign, potassium is, is a marker, it's a fingerprint that you have some sort of a forest fire. Because commonly with forest fires, you're gonna get you know soot, which we've all seen, you know, coming mm -hmm. out the back of a car. You'll have soot, but you'll have potassium. And that potassium is 
a marker that you have a forest fire. Mm -hmm. But you always have it found at the same time as you have this soot, okay? And so, like, in this campaign, you know, to have a, a specific satellite always that's looking for forest fires, and you can look at the satellite and go, okay, were there any forest fires? Where was the wind direction? Did we have any transport from an area where there was possibly a forest fire? And the answer to all those questions is no. You know, this air mass traveled a 1,000 miles over the forest. There was no forest fire, okay? So what if by some miracle, you know, it still somehow got there? You would find this black carbon, this soot that you see from, from fires. And I think that's one of the things that's really important and, and unique about this particular paper is because using the techniques of the advanced light source, you can probe that carbon and you can look specifically and say it's soot, it's not soot. And what they see is there is no soot. It's organic carbon. There's no soot, but there's potassium there. So the difference between particles and soot is that soot is just ash from burned organic materials, whereas the, the particles you see in the forest are still fully formed organic compounds. Is that right? Well, so they're fully formed, they're, they're organic compounds, and typically what happens is that you have organics that are emitted from the forest, from the canopy, and as they're in the atmosphere, they'll react with ozone or with OH, and what happens is the products that they make are usually what they call less volatile. They want to condense more readily than the original compounds. So they're, so these gas phase products are looking for something they can nucleate onto. And the longer they age and the more they react, the more they want to condense. They become less and less volatile. So the combustion process, what, what makes soot is, is this, this is, turns out to be almost a, a graphitic type of a carbon. It's it's bound in, you know, a lot of rings of carbon like benzene that are, or even like, you know, graphite that, that are graphitic sheets. So it's very highly conjugated, very connected rings of, of carbonaceous compounds. And they absorb solar radiation at longer wavelengths. And they are, you know, in their best form, they are black. You see them and they're black. So it's a very different type of a carbon binding than in a typical organic compound. And then getting back to the, the potassium salt you mentioned, are, are they just salt crystals or are the potassium embedded with the organic components? Well, okay, so that was kind of fun because, you know, when you have a particle and it has, it can be a, a liquid phase even, and it can be mixed homogeneously, when it would be impact onto uh, this plate, then it will, you know, it will dry and you're left with this residual. So you could find that as it would dry, the least soluble components will precipitate first. So you could find like a crystal core. And we see this, you know, in other studies with fresh sea salt, that you get this, if it's fresh, you see this crystal core. So what they found was on the small particles, and in the early morning, 
they would see a really nice little potassium crystal core surrounded by the organic material. And then later on during the day, as things were, were aged because the sun comes out and it dries photochemistry and that starts the aging process with the ozone and with OH radicals. As things aged, the residual that was left behind was different. That particles were larger and they contained more organic and you would find that the potassium was still there but it wouldn't come out and be just a crystal anymore. It would be more diffuse throughout the particle. And what that indicates is that the potassium isn't there in the same chemical form, okay? Mm -hmm. That it's probably changed and been transformed into um, some sort of an organic containing potassium rather than the initial salt that it would mm -hmm. have been. So it's, it's aged. And we've done some other work where we've really looked at this kind of an aging process of these salts in that I think that's starting to be a sort of a general trend that when they're fresh, you can get these nice crystals that really look like salt and they're beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then as they age, they really form more of, a, of an organic component, mm -hmm. an organic salt that is now mixed throughout a particle much more homogeneously and will not separate out independently like a salt anymore. And part of that is this whole process of, you know, it ages and it may travel and maybe it can dry out a little bit and, and then rehydrate and that changes the chemistry within the aerosol itself. It's very fascinating. Um, I guess it's time for a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back to the Grok Science Show. For those of you who just joined us, we're talking with Dr. Ann Gillis of the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. Uh, we've been talking about the particulates that form clouds. You certainly give a very good description of what you found um, in the atmosphere, uh, but you were more directly involved with the actual analytical uh, chemistry, namely the um, X-ray transmission. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges there? Um, so I've been doing this. <laughs> oh, I hear sneeze in the background. Scanning <laughs> transmission X-ray microscopy for a, about a decade, and um, I think you know people, if they've looked at kind of microscopy images before, they may see electron images, um, and the soft X-rays are different in that you can get elemental information because the energy at which each element absorbs is specific. So you can get elemental information, but it doesn't have as good of spatial resolution. You can't see as small of features as if you use electron microscopy methods. So if you just want elemental information, I think there are better ways to do it. But the, the 
the real beauty of this technique is that you can look at what kind of bonding environment is this element in. Is carbon bonded to oxygen? Is it bonded just to another carbon atom? So that you can get a spatially resolved bonding information on carbon. And that's mm -hmm. really an important um, thing to know in a lot of environmental fields is how is that carbon bound and does that binding change depending on what is next to it? Is there a metal? Is it correlated with the metal and does the bonding change with the metal? And so I think here, you know, that was a pretty key um, part of this particular work because you could see that the potassium was there, it's in the same particles as the carbon, and you could see specifically that the carbon is not soot, it's organic, and it looks very similar to, you know, what we think of as a laboratory standard for what these aged emissions from a, a forest should look like. So the challenges, are, um, it's funny, the biggest challenge is actually sample collection um, from the perspective that you need to collect these onto a fairly fragile film. It's 100 nanometers thick uh, silicon nitride window. And uh, it takes some skill to learn to do that without breaking these membranes. And typically, the sample collection has a, sort of an impactor set up that selects specific size ranges because this is a transmission experiment, which means that something has to absorb light, but it can't absorb all of it. Because if it absorbs all of it, you can't detect the light that went through it. And we're detecting the difference in the light that goes through the particle to the light that doesn't go through a particle. So it's, it's a transmission, it's an absorption experiment. So it's a fairly narrow size range of particles that that this will work for. Um, and it depends on what the chemical composition and bonding of that particle is. And so it's typically on the order of um, sort of 80 nanometers to maybe uh, uh, a couple of microns if they're not too strongly absorbing. So it's a fairly... Um, specific size range, but you also want to collect so that you don't have one particle hit and then another one goes directly on top of it because you want to know that you have distinct particles and not that you've just collected 87 different particles on top of each other. And so having that collection done in a way that is correct takes some skill um, and some some practice. And you don't want you know, all of these overlapping particles because like in this paper we saw there's sort of three different types of carbonaceous particles. And if you just had where you collected all of the particles and collected all of them and characterized all of them together, you never know that, yeah, we have three different types of particles, but each one of them contains this potassium. You would just know you have an average and that this is what it is, but you wouldn't know. There's actually more than one kind of process going on that's making these particles distinctly different, and they're falling into a couple of different categories.
Wow, that's that's pretty fascinating. Um, uh, initially you mentioned about the terpenes forming in these um, particles. Are they given off as a gas from the plants, or are they well, already coming off yeah, as particles? This is, this is no. This is actually given off as a gas. It's a, as a gas phase molecule from the plants, and there are a variety of compounds that that plants do emit, and um, and that's a very common one. I think you know alpha pinene, um, but these are very common from plants and. Um, in the, the aging process in the atmosphere, um, these will be degraded and they'll be reacted away and you end up forming um, compounds that the more it reacts, the less it wants to be a gas. The more it reacts, the more it, it would, it's not volatile and it doesn't want to be in the gas phase. Oh, I see. And so it's looking for a place that it can condense onto. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, the Amazon is supposedly a pristine environment with without a lot of uh, industrial pollutants. Um, does this mean that you didn't detect a lot of NOx or SOx-related particles? Um, yeah, well, the, I think, you know, if you're looking for nitrates and sulfates, those are more industrial. And, you know, we've seen these looking at, you know, emissions out of power plant plumes and, and things like that. And, and that's not what you expect in this region, and it's not what you see. I see. And then, um, finally, with the article that was published, it mentions about the role of fungal spores uh, in the larger particles. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was kind of fun. So, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I said that you, you have these impactors so you can select off different sizes of particles. And one of the things that um, Christopher found was that um, there are a lot of spores that they saw in these um, larger size particles. And these are greater than a micron. And, you know, these spores are coming from fungi and, and plants. And that... That was one of the things that I thought, okay, you know, people do know that the emission of these from plants is that there's some potassium and some salts that come with this material when it's emitted. And that could be, that emission could be the source of some of these potassium. question is like, you know, where is it coming from? It's not coming from a forest fire. Where's Where is this potassium coming from? And so the idea is that, you know, they're they're seeing that, there are, there's evidence of these plant emissions that people do know can actually contain potassium and salts. Mm -hmm. uh, what about uh, bacteria or viruses? Are, are those also found in these aerosols? Oh, I don't even know what the size range of bacteria and viruses are. I, I would have to check on what that size range okay. is. Um, Oh, I should have it sitting in front of me. But, I mean, the, the things like spores are pretty unique. I mean, you look at the picture once, you see one, and you recognize them. They're pretty distinct. Mm -hmm. And they also, you know, they then what they did is they actually looked like it. They took real samples of fungal spores and things and compared them to what we were seeing in the collected samples. In terms of the actual atmospheric science, what uh, what are the implications of this finding about, about 
the different particles uh, you've characterized? Well, I think that the the most important thing is just that people hadn't really thought about, you know, that this sort of natural emission of, of potassium would f would provide the cores, the, the basic place where you would have um, the ability to grow these, you know, have materials condense onto and, and grow these larger particles. Um, and I think that that's the that's the important thing is that it really wasn't um, it wasn't in our mindset to to think about that these sort of natural potassium rich um, particles would um, influence how you would have these gas phase non-volatile products form in the formation of the particles that resulted. Yeah, that's really exciting that uh, you, you were able to discover something without having expected it. Um, wow, this is fascinating work. And wh where do you go from here? What What are the next steps in terms of um, finding out what's going on in the air? Well, I I, um, I actually think that the U.S. Department of em Energy, uh, last I heard, they were going to have a field campaign in the Amazon. Um, and I think one of the things there is, again, to look at this sort of secondary organic aerosol formation, this formation of, you know, these, you know, driving this kind of natural emissions and gas phase products, and what are they? Because they're very complex mixtures, and identifying what they are and how they're formed, um, that's, that's, an important thing to learn about and you know it's not just important in pristine areas because you know even if you have you know city areas like I live in in the bay San Francisco Bay but you know and we have lots of times when our air pattern takes this air masses from the cities or from Sacramento and takes it up into the Sierras where you have all of the the natural emissions and I think right now trying to to understand how the interplay between, you know, the, the man-made and anthropogenic emissions interact and how they influence the biogenic emissions, that, that interplay between those two is an area that there's going to be an increased amount of study. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today, Mary. Um, I, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or the work at Lawrence Berkeley Labs? I think that, you know, that in this particular work, I think it's important to, to really acknowledge the, the, the German players who really pushed this particular project, and um, that's it. I think that um, you get the most when you collaborate with a group of people, that you can ultimately get a lot more science out of it, and that's a good thing to do. Uh, Dr. Gillis, thank you so much for joining us here on the Grok Science Show. Okay. And we were just talking with Dr. Mary Gillis from the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. We were talking about their discovery of fungi and potassium crystals that underlie the formation of rain clouds. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. You can contact us at science at groks.net. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. 
Stay tuned right here for more music. Poetry.